MSW Media. Donald Trump is attacking judges and even a jury foreperson. Can our system withstand his assault on the rule of law? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but until mid-March, she is busy running for office, so I'm going to get right to our program today and a very special guest that we have joining us. But before I do, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode, with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. And if you become a patron, you'll have access to our newsletter. You can have access to our newsletter at differing levels. You can have access to our private Facebook group and other places where I get feedback from some of our uh, our patrons to make this show better. So now let's turn to our guest, Joyce Vance. Many of you know her as an MSNBC legal analyst. She's on that network all the time. But she was also the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, who is a lead prosecutor in that region appointed by President Obama. And since that time, she had her long career as a federal prosecutor. Uh, she now is at the University of Alabama School of Law and doing all sorts of important work in the private sector as well. So let's bring in Joyce Vance. Welcome back to the podcast, Joyce. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have to say, for quite some time, we've you know repeatedly been watching Trump uh, interfere in the Justice Department. Uh, we've we've seen him um, sort of having a, there's been an assault on the rule of law, but it seems like he's stepped up a lot lately. He's been emboldened to attack judges and to attack uh, in a jury four person. You know, what, do you view this as sort of more the same from Trump, or have things taken a turn? You know, what I think we're seeing now is post-impeachment Trump. We're seeing what happens when the gloves come off. He's faced one of the worst sorts of allegations a president could face, the fact that he used taxpayer dollars and resources, uh, damaged our national security and one of our allies in an effort to get himself reelected. And the Republicans in uh, Congress in both the House and the Senate were unwilling to hold him accountable. So now he feels both like he can do whatever he wants to do, and also he seems to be hell-bent on revenge. Yeah, you know, we've seen this sort of, there was this news recently about like an enemies list that was prepared, people to sort of purge or remove from his administration. It seems like he's trying to consolidate power uh, over the executive branch. I think that's right. The the most um, disturbing development, I think, came in a story that I saw this morning where his one of his press guys, Hogan Gidley, had referred to their desire 
to uh, remove millions of people across the country who weren't sufficiently loyal to the president. You know, presidents can remove their political appointees. Um, They shouldn't do it for uh, political reasons. We all know that from the Bush scandal with removing U.S. attorneys. But here, the implication is that there's going to be some sort of a loyalty test applied to career public servants. That's the only way you get to millions of people. I expect that even this administration will have to uh, sort of beat a hasty retreat from that protection just because of the protections um, for civil servants. But if they don't, it would be truly shocking. Yeah, you mentioned, excuse me, protections for civil servants. Just so our listeners understand, if someone is a is a career employee at the Justice Department or in another federal agency, there's a process, a due process that they uh, can go through. Um, you know, be, they, they that they can challenge a potential uh, termination of their employment. What I'm worried more about, uh, Joyce, is things like you know, for instance, in the EPA, they they moved an office halfway across the country. A lot of people obviously didn't want to pick up their families and move many states away, and so they left and then they didn't replace those people. You know, different ways of trying, you know, there's subtle ways in which you can, you know, lower the body count, so to speak, or the number of people in an, in a, in a uh, agency or in a department and change it. And, and we've also seen, in my mind, implicit pressure being put on the Justice Department where now, you know, I, that we had that story come out uh, that, uh, you know, U.S. attorney's offices in other parts of the country are reviewing Mueller's work to see, you know, if there's some problems or things that they can um, they can challenge or or a fly spec, and on the other side, you're getting inordinate resources poured um, into investigations and and attempts to prosecute Trump's perceived enemies, like Andrew McCabe, where you had one set of prosecutors who were appointed, and then um, they found insufficient evidence to charge, and a second uh, group of prosecutors tried again, they weren't able to get an indictment, and so then. The Justice Department still pushed forward until finally giving up recently. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is unprecedented. I feel like we've been saying this is unprecedented throughout this whole administration. So maybe it's important for us to take a minute and help people understand that this is unprecedented in a dangerous and a frightening way. Because at at DOJ, when you investigate a case and decide that there is insufficient evidence to go ahead and prosecute, you close the case. I would often tell the agents if it was a fluid situation, you know, feel free to come back to me if you have new evidence. But that's not what's going on here. They're trying to get a second and a third bite at the apple on the same set of facts, just in hopes that they can find prosecutors who will go after the president's enemies, while at the same time, um, you know, resourcing those cases at the cost of who knows what that's going undone. Yeah, what's perverse about it, Joyce, I think, is you have Trump attacking the Justice Department, attacking law enforcement, attacking uh, the FBI, attacking the judiciary as politicized and corrupt, while himself trying to use the Justice Department and the FBI and and um, and uh, and DOJ to pr- you know pr- push his own politicized prosecutions and trying to move the scales in, in behalf of his friend Roger Stone and others. You know, to me, you know, I, I am all for having scrutiny of of what Justice Department is doing and what uh, the FBI does. But this is essentially there's this he's doing what he's complaining that they do almost to prove his point. 
I think that we're past the point where we can pretend that this is a normal president and a normal Justice Department. This is a president who uses the Justice Department for his own purposes, who has no commitment or allegiance to American values of fair play and the rule of law. You know, what worries me, Joyce, is in my state of Illinois, uh, the United States Attorney's Office plays an important role because we've had extensive corruption in both political parties. Uh, members of those parties where we've had, for example, uh, Republican and Democratic governors who've been uh, indicted and convicted and ultimately imprisoned for engaging in corrupt behavior. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, federal prosecutors, the Justice Department are seen in my state as a kind of a neutral arbiter who comes in and when they bring a, a prosecution, it generally, you know, it, ch- it changes, ends political careers, it changes the landscape Times, uh, you know, it changes how voters vote and and the the whole course of of uh, you know the political arena in my state because there's a respect for the fact that you know corruption is being rooted out by the Justice Department. You know, now we have Trump. You know, for example, he pardoned Bogoyevich uh, a week ago, or uh, excuse me, um, commuted Bogoyevich's sentence. Bogoyevich has been attacking um, this, uh, you know, attacking his prosecution as a police. He said he was a political prisoner and and saying that he was unfairly treated and unlawfully charged. And I, I'm worried that if we don't, you know, now we don't have faith in this Justice Department, it's going to be hard for us to get back to the point where we have faith that that uh, that prosecutions are being done for the right reasons you know i sh- i share that worry i have that same fear um that it's very difficult for doj to reclaim its legitimacy and its integrity uh the public will have a hard time sort of reinvesting trust and and you know i remember with the prosecution of rod blagojevich your former governor who as you point out has just had his sentence commuted I remember um, when Pat Fitzgerald, who ended up prosecuting him, was brought in from New York. I don't think that he had an Illinois connection, but I think that one of your senators, maybe Dick Durbin, reached out and spoke with him about coming to Illinois to be the U.S. attorney because they were so intent on wanting somebody who was neutral, um, who could handle corruptions with no appearance of favor and certainly with no fear in the case of Pat Fitzgerald. And I remember how difficult that prosecution was, like all public corruption cases are. There were some issues on appeal. But at the end of the day, people understood that someone with Pat Fitzgerald's integrity had done that case strictly on the basis of the evidence, you know, the law and the facts, um, without fear or favor, as, as we like to say. And so people took some comfort in the integrity of the process. I, I fear that we've lost so much of that because of this administration's practices. Yeah, that's right. I, I will say, I mean, Pat was my former boss, and you know, he prosecuted George Ryan, the prior governor, who was a Republican, he, and also prosecuted Rob Blagojevich, a Democrat. And Pat was somebody, like you said, was from the Southern District of New York, was not a Chicago lawyer or prosecutor, didn't have Chicago roots, uh, but was respected uh, by both sides uh, and is still a very respected figure in Illinois. And there was widespread condemnation of uh, Trump's um, commutation of Bogoyevich's sentence uh, by both Republicans and Democrats in Illinois. But what's in, you know, what I worry about is um, Trump has been trying to sow distrust. You know, I have, you know, and I'm sure you've heard from just so many on the, uh, of Trump's allies and people on the right who claim the whole system is corrupt, the Justice Department's corrupt, the judiciary is corrupt, and so on and so forth. 
And at the same time, uh, people, uh, progressives are, are looking at this and saying, OK, well, under Trump, the Justice Department's corrupt. And under Trump, uh, you know, I'm seeing, uh, a, you know, actions that don't make any sense. And so, you know, I think it's it, there's a sense of which a belief in the process and a belief that the process works um, is an important part of every of this whole uh, of the whole system going forward. And that's what we've lost. You know, I think that's what DOJ runs on, right? It sort of runs on trust. The reason people let prosecutors make decisions that are often shrouded by grand jury secrecy. I mean, there's a, a lot of concern, a lot of people who believe we need criminal justice reform. But to the extent that the system has worked, it has done that because people have understood that career employees at DOJ act with integrity. It's a huge loss if people no longer believe that. Well, and it's the same with judges, right? So we've come a long way from the time when Al Gore was standing, uh, you know, gave a speech to the nation uh, after the Bush versus Gore decision, which meant that, you know, ended his president, you know, his, his potential for becoming president and was a widely criticized decision at that time and has still been criticized. He came out and said, look, I respect the rule of law. I respect what the court says. That we've come so far from that to have a president openly attacking members of the judiciary is corrupt and unfair and, you know, really putting Judge Jackson in, in a very, very difficult position. At the same time, I will say, look, I'm all for having healthy skepticism about judges and their decisions and, and scrutinizing them and scrutinizing the Justice Department. What um, but I, it's just, you know, having, the, you know, having these sort of open attacks by the president of the United States. Um, it makes it very difficult for the judiciary to do its job in our constitutional system, which is in part to check the president. You know, absolutely. And, and I fear that what this leads into is uh, end of March, March 31st, the Supreme Court hears oral argument in two cases involving whether the president's tax returns have to be turned over in one case to Congress and in another case to the Manhattan uh, district attorney. And it seems very likely, the law is pretty clear, that the president, will his tax returns will have to be turned over. And I think at that point, we will find out two very important things for the future of our country. One, whether the president will comply with an order from the highest court in the land. And second, if he doesn't, what will his Republican allies do about it? Will they give him another pass? Yeah. I mean, it's really, that's, people talk a lot about constitutional crises, Joyce, but it seems to me that the ultimate one is the fact that the, the judiciary doesn't have its own army or police force. Um, it can't enforce its own laws. It relies on the executive branch to do it. And if you have a situation in which the president of the United States is refusing to comply with uh, orders by the judiciary, you know, that really can upend our entire system. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's dangerous. I hope it won't come to that. We'll be in, in a very, very difficult and, and dark place um, if the president were to violate uh, an order from the Supreme Court. And of course, it's, I, I think, unimaginable um, that he wouldn't be held accountable for that. But who knows? You know, there was only one Republican vote for removal of this president from office, despite evidence of what he had done. Indeed. And, you know, here now he's attacking members of the Supreme Court. I have to say to me, that was, uh, you know, it's it's be extreme. He's done it before. He attacked Chief Justice Roberts, for example. He attacked, you know, and, and, and Chief Justice Roberts, of course, stood up for the judiciary and said that there's no such thing as Obama judges or Trump judges or Bush judges and so forth. 
but he's now he's attacked uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor for a dissent that she wrote um, in which she was sort of taking issue with a change in Supreme Court practices that seemed to favor the Trump administration and was a sharp departure from the court's um, procedure in the past regarding uh, staying um, rulings on uh, while they were pending before the court. You know, I remember all of the criticism of President Obama, people who used to say, well, he's just a constitutional lawyer. And I think how much better off the country is when we have a constitutional lawyer in the Oval (laughs) Office. Yeah, no kidding. Or at least somebody who I think has a sense of humility in their place in the world. In other words, you know, the president of the United States has awesome power. And I, I, you know, I, I had heard a lot of people saying while he was being uh, Trump was was running for office and was not yet president. That once he's in the Oval Office and he'll be in awe and uh, in awe of that experience and humbled by it and you know and this this and that and that that has not happened with him. And I feel like you know we need a, a woman or man in that office who um, is able to see the you know have some respect for the fact that the country is so much bigger and the Constitution is so much bigger than that individual person. So at this point, I think I would just uh, settle for somebody who wasn't intent on lining their own pockets by ripping off the taxpayer without <laughs> worrying about how that impacted our national security. It's a it's a low bar, but but that's my bar right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I will tell you, I've stayed out of making any predictions or anything about the presidential race because I've learned uh, not only in 2016, but before that, that I am not a political expert or pundit in any respect. I can't predict anything about elections. Um, but yeah, I, I would it would be really wonderful to have a president who respects the rule of law, who um, respects the Constitution, respects other branches of government. And um you know what I what I see here is you know the you know he's Trump has learned that Congress will not be a check on his power even though you know the checks and balances that we all learn about in grade school and high school as being central to our system of government a big part of that is Congress checking the president that isn't happening uh, you know at least through the United States Senate and obviously the House of Representatives controlled by Democrats is a different story. But um, now, you know, the 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 main uh, checks on Trump's power are the judiciary, uh, freedom of speech and, and the, the ability to speak out and spread truth. He's been attacking the press for some time, attacking the idea of truth, trying to create his own reality. And then, of course, um, you also have an election coming up. That's an important check on Trump's power. And I think he's doing whatever he can to try to influence the results of that. So you're making a very interesting point, which I think in some ways brings us full circle. You know, we have a president who's now in the process of trying to uh, destroy or damage any institution that could possibly check his power. And so we've reached the point where we're talking not about checks and balances from other branches of government, although it looks like the judiciary or at least parts of the judiciary are valiantly trying to remain a check. But we're talking so much these days about, um, you know, the fourth branch of government, the press, and also uh, talking about the institution of, of voting of, of all of us as citizens as the, the final checks on Trump if everything else fails. And, of course, we see him trying to uh, both damage the press and suppress the vote. So it looks like he really is attacking any institution that could possibly counter his power. Yeah, I am blown away by the attacks on the press. 
you know, I have a lot of admiration for the work that that people in the press do. And I don't always agree with everybody uh, who, you know, all of every opinion that's expressed. But I think the First Amendment is such an important uh, kind of cornerstone of our democracy. And it's interesting to see Trump talk about essentially, you know, he says he always send the licenses, for example, for CNN and MSNBC, um, which you can't do their cable, uh, their cable networks. But nonetheless, you know, he, you know, there's this sense he wants to silence speech. He wants to silence critics. And since he can't do that because of the Constitution, he's doing everything he can to delegitimize anyone who's reporting the truth, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post um, or, or the or cable networks or others. I think that's right. You don't have to look any further than the fact that we're paying the salary of a White House press spokesperson who doesn't have press conferences, uh, <laughs> that Secretary Pompeo has gone on foreign trips without taking members of the press along with him. The access of the press has been narrowed at the same time that the president has tried to delegitimize them in the eyes of as many people in the country as possible. So I have to say my my hopes um, are largely with the press to get us through this. Yeah, to me it's them and, and also I think citizens, people who are like who are listening to this podcast, you know, people who are going to be out there trying to make a difference, whether it's organizing, uh, voting, um, you know, donating, doing whatever, sending postcards, doing all the things that they can to get involved. You know, I think that one thing that, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, I was asked earlier, I gave a, a talk at a law school earlier today, and I was asked by a student, well, is Trump getting away with it, so to speak? And I I'm like, that's not the right question to ask. That's not the way I would look at it. And that, you know, the, the you know, power is exercised in this country and there's all sorts of different uh, checks on that. And w- the most important one, the most fundamental one is the ability in this case to vote the president out of office. And um, really, to me, you know, this is going to come down to people exercising their First Amendment rights of speech and assembly and organizing and doing everything they can to, to change those results in November. And if they don't, you know, that's going to have significant consequences for the country. Yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. One of, the, one of the ironies of the time that we live in is that this weekend will be the 55th anniversary of the Selma Bridge March, um, where uh, African-American activists were beaten. John Lewis was beaten by state troopers marching to try to exercise their right to vote. And I'll be down in Selma Saturday and Sunday for the anniversary um, of the march. We'll be doing a, a panel on voting rights in Selma, focusing on uh, the way the right to vote for formerly incarcerated people has been suppressed, but also in states like Alabama, uh, where there are onerous ID requirements and, and all sorts of other restrictions, um, gerrymandering, that in many cases will impact people's uh, right to vote in, in state elections. So there are just a lot of different ways that the right to vote is under attack. And the most important thing that people can do is is go ahead and register and, and make sure that they know what their status is. Yeah, absolutely. And get active in what, you know, even if it's just in local races. In my state, which is not going to be a swing state in the presidential contest. There's lots of people organizing drives to send postcards and to and go canvas in neighboring states and things like that. It can be very important. Um, to, to, let's turn back to the Stone case for a second. You know, one thing that I find unfortunate about this, Joyce, is that the in, and kind of interesting is that Trump's actions and Barr's actions in the 
uh, Stone case have raised a lot of issues that have, in fact, sparked debates that are important debates, but they're done in such a warped context. You know, for example, I think there's a a healthy debate to be had about the value of the sentencing guidelines, whether or not the Justice Department should be recommending below guideline sentences more often, um, whether, you know, how our jury process works, all sorts of things that are related to this. I find it interesting, of course, that Trump's uh, allies suddenly find themselves very concerned about criminal justice reform when it's a friend of the president who is involved in the criminal justice system. But and that's what I find unfortunate here is you'll kind of find a perversion of these debates and arguments that really, um, in my mind, um, it it all it 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 um, can distract the public from what should be an important and healthy debate about the criminal justice system and how it could be improved and reformed. You know, I've been wondering about the same thing. I, part of my work, a big part of it as, as a U.S. attorney, was that I chaired um, the criminal practice uh, subcommittee for the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, and we worked a lot on charging and sentencing reform, and those issues are often on my mind. And I wonder if maybe one of the silver linings of the Trump administration won't be a focus on sentencing reform, which we need in this country. We send too many people to prison for too long. Um, And so perhaps that will give some incentive, although frankly, there has uh, long been bipartisan consensus on the need for us to to do that kind of work. But I think in in a weird sort of way, I do welcome this focus. I'm, I'm concerned, though, that at the same time that, you know, the president is saying, oh, my nice friend who's, you know, an, an old white guy who's a nonviolent offender shouldn't go to jail for this long, that we really need to worry about, for instance, drug sentencing and other kinds of sentences. And the president is always, you know, ready to draw up this image of um, hordes of, you know, Mexican gang members um, coming up from our southern border and doesn't seem to have the same care concern in those cases. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, the the vet, there's tens of thousands of people who are prosecuted every year by the Justice Department. There are millions of people. Of course, there's plenty of people who are prosecuted by state authorities. There are millions behind bars in the United States uh, now. And we're focusing a lot on a white guy who's a friend of the president. Um, and, you know, I one thing that I've always thought was a, a benefit of white collar crime is that it it you know, it it goes after people who are in a privilege, uh, a privilege spot in our society and ensures that they are also participating in the criminal justice system. And I think that one thing that has been generated here is you're starting to see more than ever uh, the Republican Party, um, you know, expressing concern about criminal justice reform and Trump, you know, even you know, championing a very modest but nonetheless progress in a criminal justice reform bill. But I just I, I, I think what concerns me, of course, is that it's being done, you know, primarily, it seems like in this case, certainly to to push forward uh, a, a corrupt agenda. Well, well, you're right. That's the problem here. The president isn't committed to criminal justice reform. He's committed to making sure that people who could potentially offer testimony against him don't spend enough nights in prison that they'll decide to cooperate with federal prosecutors, right? When you get right down to it, that's what's going on here. And and so I don't think in any way, shape, or form what we're seeing with this administration is a real commitment to criminal justice reform. I think that there's been a broad base of 
of bipartisan support for reform, frankly, with partners ranging, you know, where, where else in American society do you see the Koch Foundation working alongside the ACLU? But we see that with criminal justice reform. So there is that commitment, and, and maybe there's a weird silver lining where this gives that process a little bit of a push. Um, but I don't say that to give this president any credit in, in this area. I don't think he deserves any. Oh, absolutely not. And it's the same in the same way. I think that, it, you know, at times it's important to be skeptical of decisions by ju- the judiciary and scrutinize those heavily. But I don't I don't view him blasting uh, members of the judiciary uh, when they are you know, standing uh, in judgment of his friends as, as the way to accomplish that. Well, I think this brings up another issue, which is, of course, that Trump has had a growing influence over the, ju- the judiciary through judicial appointments. I mean, you know, through ending the uh, filibuster, which happened initially under Harry Reid um, and, and the Democrats, but then has been expanded to the Supreme Court uh, by the Republicans, and then the ending of the blue slip process by the Republicans. Republicans have been able to get through appointments of federal judges at a more rapid pace than any other uh, presidency in history. Uh, and, you know, a second term would really um, expand that even further out. Um, and I think that's going to have an impact on, the, you know, the uh, the way in which we're going to, you know, the types of decisions that we're going to see in the years to come. You know, I'm eternally optimistic about the judiciary. Um, a lot of the, the new Trump judges don't consider themselves Trump judges. They consider themselves judges sort of with a hat tip to the chief justice. But I think we do have to have some concern, particularly about what might happen on the Supreme Court. Um, and I think it's particularly odious that the president singles out individual judges for criticism. You know, we saw him do that in some of the Muslim ban cases. Uh, we've seen him do that again here. He singled out judges in cases that impacted his personal interests. She'll recall um, the famous statement that a judge couldn't decide his case because he was of Mexican extraction. So this is just, you know, it's not a bug with this president that happens once or twice. It's a feature. Um, he has no respect, no more respect for the judiciary than he has for Congress or anyone else who he doesn't believe is sufficiently loyal to him. Yeah. One 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 question that um, one of our listeners had is that Barr uh, yesterday met with Republican lawmakers but did not meet with Democratic lawmakers. And she asked, this is Honey Bernstein, she asked if that was normal or if attorney generals usually only meet with one party. So I I think to be fair, it depends on the setting and the issues. In this particular situation with this particular attorney general at this point in his term, the notion that he would exclude Democrats from a meeting um, I, I think is is something that wouldn't have been tolerated if, for instance, the shoe had been on the other foot and Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch had done something like this. Uh, and it strikes me as incredibly inappropriate, but very much in keeping uh, with uh, the way that Attorney General Barr has handled the office. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. You know, one one of our other listeners um, Ra- Raul uh, asked uh, if judges have a way of pushing back on the attacks on the judiciary, and he asked why Chief Justice Roberts didn't push back. And I think that's an interesting question. I, I actually think that Judge Jackson did in some of her comments in the case I thought were, um, you know, where she was essentially talking about the importance of keeping the jury, the integrity of the jury system and the, the way that the system works being 
um, interfered with by Trump's by Trump's comments. She didn't say it quite as directly as that, but I think that was the import of what she said. But I think people are looking for her or the or the chief judge justice to issue orders or do something more direct, and and that's not really the way the judiciary operates. You know, it's not, but it's a good question that Raul asks, and I think that a lot of people who aren't lawyers or haven't been involved, particularly with the federal judiciary don't understand how much of their power comes from restraint um, and avoiding the abuse of, of that power. And so I think the judge did what I would hope a judge would do in this setting. She set an example of how the rule of law works because her behavior exemplified it. Um, her words were powerful and forceful. Of course, we live in a country where not everyone had time to read the transcript of that hearing uh, and where I think that message was certainly lost on the president for whom it has to have been intended um, in at least some part. So the question that that raises, of course, is whether Chief Justice Roberts has to speak out on behalf of the judiciary. He's already done it once. It really got people's attention because it was such an incredibly unusual thing for a chief justice to do. And I'm sure that he has the fear if he develops a pattern of responding to every time Trump steps over the line with the judiciary, if the chief justice goes to bat, after a while, it starts to look like he's engaged in a squabble with the president and it only drags the judiciary down further into the mud. So he has a very difficult um, road to walk. And, and I think we're, you know, we just have to watch how this plays out because it's, we don't really know at this point where it'll end. Yeah, I think Judge Jackson, for example, did exactly what I would have done in in the, those shoes, which is make a statement on the record. But you know, I, you know, I, I had had somebody ask me earlier today, uh, well, you know, could she have issued an order or tried to, you know, hold someone in contempt? Uh, you know, and and that's you know, getting dragged into a dispute with the president of the United States is not really where the judiciary wants to be. And as you point out, if Chief Justice Roberts was issuing a statement every time. Trump said anything, he would be kind of lowering himself uh, in, in the judiciary in the process. I think that they would suddenly become part of the political fray, which is not where judges want to be. I think to me, the the main concern uh, for the judiciary uh, in, in one thing that's looming in the background, of course, is that, as I had alluded to earlier, the judiciary doesn't enforce the law. Um, they, they make issue rulings, but ultimately they rely on the executive branch. And you know, um, one thing that's lying underneath the surface here is, of course, that if the executive branch just said, "Well, we're not enforcing your your uh, your rulings," um, the, the our entire system would break down. So it's really a delicate balance, and I think I get the sense that a lot of people in Washington are sort of putting their heads down and trying to see if we can just get through this period with this, as much of the system remaining intact as possible. I don't think that that's the right approach. Um, and for people who are elected, they have no excuse. But I think for the judiciary, particularly given the role of the constitutional and limited role that they have, that's the that's you know very well maybe the right approach for them. Yeah, I, I agree with you a hundred percent on both counts. So one thing that has been a resounding question when I asked for questions from listeners, kind of a resounding question from so many people was, well, what can we do about this? What's being done about this? Is Trump going to get away with everything and and so on and so forth? I've heard that many times. And, you know, I think um, what I what, what the way I look at it, Joyce, and I'd be curious about your view, is that 
Trump has done all sorts of things, some of which break norms and not laws, some things where he'll violate a rule or a regulation uh, or even a civil law for which there's no enforcement mechanism. There's no you know, crime that's been committed or, or right. something like that. There have been times then when he has committed crimes, like he obstructed justice, where there was, um, you know, he wasn't prosecuted because the DOJ doesn't prosecute sitting presidents. Um, but there's a whole variety of things kind of cooking here. And I think what we have is a president who is exerting the maximal amount of power he possibly can, and he's sort of relying on, you know, he's essentially trying to, you know, say, well, stop me if you can, or and try to undermine the institutions that can. I think what we're seeing here is that, you know, there are only certain institutions in our in our system that are able to check a president. Some aren't willing to right now, like the Senate and others uh, have limited power to do that. Um, but I think what people are starting to see is that the the way in which we thought that presidents constrained are constrained and some in some instances are not um, are, are not as robust as we thought they were. Right. I think that's true. A lot of the power of the presidency uh, is restrained from abuse because presidents have typically had the best interests of the country at heart. You might disagree with them on policy matters, but they were Americans first. Clearly, that's not the case here. So I think where we're left, and, and you really hinted at this in our earlier conversation about the institutions that Trump was attacking that might still um, exercise some restraint on him. And I think what we're left to do as citizens, because I certainly don't want to be the um, citizen equivalent of the Republican senator who twiddled his thumbs and drank his milk <laughs> and then voted to give the president a, a clean bill of health. So I think we're obligated to push back in our own lives with whatever power and, and tools um, that we have to push back. And for a lot of us, that will take the form of supporting two institutions, the press and the right to vote. You know, we can, uh, if we can afford it, get subscriptions from local newspapers and from other uh, news sources. We can uh, read sources that are available for free and read widely, read not only uh, news sources that have views that are consistent with our own, but news sources that question our views. And we can become better informed um, and make sure that we're not living in a, a news bubble where where we don't get all sides of the issues. You know, we can all do that as citizens, be informed, go hear live speakers, have respectful conversations with friends, and, and then more critically, vote. Register to vote, make sure your friends and family are registered, and have a transportation plan on election day. You know, there's a, a great piece of legislation, the Motor Voter Act, and it says that a state government, because the states maintain voter rules, can't change your voting status closer than 90 days to an election. So I really encourage people on the 89th day before an election to go online and make sure that they're an active voter, make sure that their polling place is still where they think it is, make sure that they've got whatever ID their state requires them to have to vote and be fully prepared to exercise the franchise. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Those are, that's great suggestions. Joyce, I think that that's exactly right. And I will just say, look, I was in law school when um, Al Gore was defeated by George W. Bush by a margin that was so small in Florida. I remember thinking at the time that if I had just taken a month or two off of school, I probably could have gone down to Florida and convinced that many people to vote for uh, Gore over Bush myself. It was 500 and something votes or whatever it was. 
And I just, you know, if, if you are so concerned about what's going on in this country that you're writing these questions to us or you're engaged, then take this opportunity from now till November to do everything you can so you don't have to look back the way I did and regret not doing enough in an election. So, you know, not only like like Joyce was saying a minute ago, making sure you can vote, but going out there and encouraging others to vote and canvas and organize and participate and donate and raise and do whatever you can to move the ball forward. Because years from now, you know, if all of these things that you care about and are concerned about are changed. You're not going to be thinking about that time that, you know, you, you saw an extra movie or you binge watched something on Netflix, you know, back in uh, 2020, you're going to be thinking about, you know, in that election and, and what you could have done to make a difference. And so that's, that would be my, my uh, recommendation to people. I think that's right. We, we just all have to find ways to push back if we care about the future. Exactly right. You can't wait on, rely on somebody in Washington to do it for you. Um, I, I will say, Joyce, it's, it's such a pleasure. It was a pleasure having you on, pleasure talking to you again. I got to ask, what kind of dog do you have? Because I loved uh, hearing the dog. I'm a big dog lover myself. So I've got three dogs. Um, they're really poorly behaved. They're, they're our babies. We have an older dog who is a mix. He just sort of wandered in one day and, and never left. And then we have a boxer and a German shepherd. Oh, my God. We have a little tribe. You are very blessed, and we're very blessed to have you. I can't thank you <laughs> enough, Joyce. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's always good to talk to you, Renato. Have a good week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.